0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on 29th of May, 2019. The topic is Bipolar 2. On the panel we have Professor Philip Mitchell, Sciencia Professor at the School of Psychiatry, University of New South Wales. Joe Leadwriter, psychologist specializing in bipolar and mood disorders. Alana Fisher, postdoctoral research fellow at the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney and Ollie, our lived experience representative for this session. Chairing this evening, we have Dr. Vered Gordon.
1: Professor I might start with you. Um, certainly for, for many of us who trained a long time ago, there was only one bipolar um, and the concept of bipolar two emerged later on. I'm curious as to what led to us um, discovering or seeking another term and why that was important.
2: Um, it, it, I think it's complicated and confusing, I think, to be frank. But, um, the, the term bipolar II was only coined in the 1970s, 1980s. There was an American research group, Dave Dunner, was the person who led this, and he was the one who coined the term bipolar II. It's got a very different meaning to how we it's used in common practice today. So. He distinguished it from this presentation, from people whose, the, the, the more severe and, in, and intense aspect of their illness was the manic side of the illness. So for, for Dunner, bipolar two was where people clearly had both elevated and depressed moods, but the depressed mood was the most severe form of it. So in the original conception, these were people who were actually admitted to hospital for the depression and often were psychotic when they were depressed. Um, the, 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 the more modern concept is it's really just a mild form of bipolar disorder and it's premised around the severity of the manic episode. It's interesting, most of you would be aware of DSM and DSM doesn't even acknowledge that depression with bi- in bipolar is different to unipolar. We've done a lot of work around this and around the world, most people see it as different. Um, But it premises it around the severity of the elevated episode. So if you've ever had a manic episode, you're bipolar 1. And how do you diagnose a manic episode? This is where you're either psychotic, not all psychosis. The the main thing is you're severely impaired when you're um, in an elevated episode. Um, So the definition, you have mania if you're either psychotic Markedly impaired or hospitalised. Hospitalised, a bit of rubbery, depends on your service. Um, and hypomanic episode, the characteristics are very similar, but people aren't markedly impaired, not psychotic, not hospitalised. So it's a bit of a shift. Um, so it's premised around the severity of the elevated mood. Um, and, and we're looking at lifetime diagnosis. So if you've ever had one manic episode in DSM terms, your bipolar one, even if everything else is hypomanic. Um, So the original was premised around the severity of the depression, and it sort of morphed over time. And I think the big debate when you use the DSM approach, where it differs in terms of the severity of the elevated episode, is what is a hypomanic episode. And that's where the controversy is. Um, DSM says you've got to have it for at least four days. Um, one of the old American diagnostic systems said at least two days. But we know in contemporary practice, it's diagnosed with a few hours elevated mood. I think that's much too low, and that's part of the controversy. I see a lot of patients in clinical work here and at Northside. I just can't work out why they ever got the diagnosis of bipolar. Um, so. Um, you know, you'll hear me say this evening. I think it's heavily overdiagnosed, but that's that's the history, and I think that's the debate about, um, you know, how we define it. So it's it's largely around the severity of the elevated episode in contemporary practice. Yep.
1: And following on from there, do we have an an idea of how common bipolar two is?
2: Um, well, if you look at um, conservatively diagnosed bipolar 2, so if you look at DSM, and I think you could be where DSM is a committee decision. A lot of these are reasonably subjective decisions. So they worked on the basis of how many symptoms you had and the duration, and they came down on four. There was a lot of debate between DSM-4 and DSM-5. There was a lot of pressure from groups around the world to be broader, um, to diagnose people, allow the diagnosis if people have one or two days of elevated mood. The committee came to the decision not to go because they were just worried that this would lead to enormous diagnosis in the community um, and you know the, I suppose the advantages and disadvantages of that. So if you use the conservative diagnosis, um, it's about the same, maybe a little bit more than bipolar one. so, we look it out. We, we did a um, we analysed the Australian National Survey of Mental Health Wing uh, Mental Health Wellbeing. We published that a few years ago, and we found that about half of the community had bipolar one um, in any one year, and about half had bipolar two. So it's roughly equal. Some studies say a little bit more with bipolar two. If if you have a broad concept of bipolar two, um, you know people would say there's nine percent of the community and half of those with depression have bipolar 2. So they're the extremes that we need to be aware of, as part of the reason of this discussion this evening. Yep.
1: So following on from that, Joe, often um, the emphasis with bipolar 2 is on the depressed phase in terms of when we're seeing people. What are perhaps some of the questions or tools you use to help you tease out if someone who's presenting with depression is perhaps uh, it's part of a bipolar picture?
3: Yeah, I think it's a really important question. I think, you know, clinically following on from, from what Phil was saying, it it is about hypomania, really, when we're talking about bipolar 2. And it's clinically really important to be able to kind of tease out that hypomania. Um, I think clinically a lot of patients I see often aren't identifying even with the concept of um, hypomania. They'll internalise that. They'll see themselves perhaps as more as... Um, being overworked, overachieving in the workplace, being a perfectionist, um, and they won't be actually, I guess, au fait or understanding of the term hypermania itself. So for me, what I find is helpful in that clinical interview is really starting to look for those behaviours. So rather than saying, have you had a hypermanic episode, it would be, tell me about a time, perhaps when there was a need for less sleep, or has there been a time when you've had pressured speech? Has there been episodes, I guess, when you've been more goal-directed? So really teasing out those specific behaviours and sort of drilling down into what exactly hypermania is, and quite in a methodical sort of constructive way, and so some of the tools I will often use in that initial clinical interview or, or thereafter um, that I find helpful is something simple like the HCL 32, which is the hypomanic checklist. And it will list um, 32 uh, hypomanic behaviours that, in a list form that you can go through Um, and have a sort of very frank discussion with that patient, I guess, about tell me a time when you might have noticed this or have you ever experienced this? Um, So that we're starting to get quite a clear clinical picture about whether or not we can differentiate between unipolar uh, depression and bipolar 2 or hypomania. I mean, there's lots of other tools as well. There's the, um, I guess, the, um, the mood disorders questionnaire, Um, And another tool that I find really helpful is even just doing something simple as doing a timeline. So sometimes pulling out an A3 piece of paper or even a butcher's piece of paper if you need a longer timeline. And actually just going through uh, decades with people and saying, was there a time when there's been an episode of this type of behavior? Um, and can you show me where that's happened, what was happening at that time? So we're looking for those kind of episodic trends. I find that quite helpful as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Lana, um, some of your work has been in shared decision-making with regard to bipolar disorder. So perhaps so that we can all understand that better. Can you just introduce us to what shared decision-making is um, and what it isn't and what might facilitate shared decision-making?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess shared decision making really sits between, I guess, traditional more paternalistic approaches to decision making where I guess the clinician is sort of all knowing and it's very much a clinician directed process in terms of deciding on treatment um, to, I guess, um, an advancement that came about more in, I guess, the 1980s really, which was more an informed choice approach to decision making where the decisional control was really handed across to the patient and really the clinician's role was only to basically present the options available and then leave the control in the hands of the patient to actually decide on the treatment. So um, I guess in terms of shared decision making that really is um, a partnership between the clinician and the patient as well as um, their family member or other important others. Um, to actually have the options presented that are available um, and these are evidence-based options and then actually deliberate on those options and actually consider those options in the context of the person's life and have them consider what are the pros and what are the cons of those different options, um, what might be their preferences for a particular option um, and actually this be sort of quite a deliberate and structured process um, so that the, um, that a decision can be made um, that's mutually agreed upon um, by all three parties. Um, and I think, sort of, some of the misconceptions that can sometimes arise with shared decision making is the idea that um, the patient might go off and make a decision that's based on uninformed preferences. Um, And I think really part of um, the process here is ensuring that the patient is properly informed um, and that their preferences are based on having an adequate knowledge of the treatment options available and that it is a decision that is mutually agreed upon uh, by both the clinician and the patient. Um, And I think that... Shared decision-making has really lagged behind in mental health. Um, It's sort of um, fairly well established in a lot of um, physical health conditions in oncology, for example. Um, And I think there's sort of greater interest and awareness and sort of really just seeing that this is um, an ethical responsibility um, to involve patients in decisions about their treatment. And also, um, and it is sort of an approach to decision-making that's in keeping with a lot of patient preferences and a lot of clinician preferences for patient involvement. Um, And in terms of, I guess, some things that may facilitate this process, um, we'll be talking a bit more about those later, Um, but there are, um, I've developed a decision-making support tool um, which really helps to, Um, facilitate this process of shared decision-making in presenting the evidence-based options available for bipolar 2 disorder in preventing relapse, and um, then also um, presenting exercises that can be worked through with the patient in weighing up um, the positive and the negative features of the evidence-based options so that they can come to an evidence-based and
1: preference-based decision. Thanks for that. Um, and so, Ollie, I might turn to you. For a lot of people, the diagnosis of bipolar um, comes after many years of other symptoms or of seeking a diagnosis. I'm wondering if that was your experience?
5: Yeah, or... absolutely. Um, <clears throat> what uh, Joe said actually really resonates with me is um, uh, I uh, was first diagnosed with uh, anxiety and depression due to a traumatic episode at um, The age of 10. And so, up until then, up until um, I was 18, that was my diagnosis and that was how I lived my life and how I was treated. And then I left school at 18, I graduated, and 2013 um, was my first year of uni. And all of a sudden, I was over the moon and I was uh, uncontrollable. I was just, I felt on top of the world. And I just thought, I didn't recognize that these behaviors were potentially harmful or uh, destructive or whatever it may be. I just thought I was better. I just thought, oh, school was the problem. And now I'm, now I'm better. Um, and so as someone who was a competitive athlete, I felt energetic and I, I fell in love with this feeling, frankly. Um, and, but then it went in. Subsided and it came crashing down, and I went back to see a psychiatrist who I hadn't, I hadn't seen one in about a year or so. Um, I was told, no, this was actually an unhealthy hypomanic episode, and yeah, so the diagnosis definitely crept up on me too as well. I guess um, for you know the former eight years or six years, uh, it was depression, and yeah, it wasn't until the hypomanic phase which like you said, I didn't even realize.
1: And only did it make a difference to have a name put to what you were experiencing? Was that useful for you?
5: Um, It was kind of confusing um, because it made me wonder if I was ever gonna go back to this hypermanic phase because in all honesty, um, and I think a lot of people with bipolar could probably relate, you kind of loved it at the time, it feels great. You finally feel like things are starting to go your way and the depression subsides. Um, so it kind of made me go, oh, is this an on and off button kind of thing? Is this going to come back? When is it going to come back? And sort of counting down the days for it to come back, it's kind of this weird, um, you're flirting with danger. And, and yeah, it, it kind of confused me a little bit, especially the one and two sort of thing, because all the resources that then I read, everything seems to give a different interpretation of it. Um, so I found it kind of confusing, frankly. Yeah.
1: Um. So, Professor Mitchell, I'm um, going back to um, what Joe was talking about. So, yeah. given we're hearing so much again, is is presenting in the depressed phase? Even Ollie eventually sought help in the depressed <laughs> phase. Um, there are things we can ask of the person. Are there epidemiologically things that connect <coughs> with the likelihood that it will be bipolar rather than a unipolar? Are there kind of warning signs or things that historically should make us think this could be?
2: Well, well, well the things that make me think um, the, the, of the possibility, because we often see people with depression. That's obviously a much more common presentation. I'm aware there's probably quite a few GPs in the audience. And People come to you with depression, they don't come to you with elevated mood. So I think anyone with depression, you've really got to exclude the possibility of bipolar. Um, So the the aspects of the depression that would make me think more so would be one, that it's episodic. um, So that someone is largely recovering in between, you need to make sure you're not missing bipolar and um, that some people that where the bipolar is occurring, the, they may, when they come out of the depression, go into a short period of elevated mood or before they go into depression, that the two phases are often interlinked. So someone with episodic depression, I'd be inquiring a little bit more carefully about the possibility of hypomanic or manic episodes. The the other is the characteristics of the depression, and Joe alluded to that, and, We've done a lot of work on this, which really has now picked up. And it's interesting when I started this work, um, reporting um, differences when people are depressed with bipolar compared to unipolar. I had some senior people around the world say, "You're wrong. We don't see any differences." Um, but it was an old literature. We were just doing probably uh, a little bit more detailed research than others. And now the field has changed, and people say it's different. So, what are the things? that we tend to see. Um, People with bipolar when they're depressed, and it's not completely clear-cut in terms of this is sharply unipolar depression, (coughs) this is sharply bipolar depression. We've used the term a probabilistic difference. So there's a greater likelihood of some symptoms when people have bipolar depression. So they're more likely to sleep a lot. And that's probably a very useful question when you talk to people with bipolar. I, I used to ask Um, when asked about sleep is, do you have trouble falling off to sleep, Um, or do you wake through the night? And my first question now is, how many hours over 24 do you sleep? It's my first question, because if you're sleeping a lot during the day, of course you're going to struggle to fall off to sleep at night. And people with bipolar will often say to you, I sleep 12 hours. 15, 16 hours a day. It's a very physical lethargy with many people with bipolar. And we found this with both bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Less frequently, but still more than with unipolar people, um, they eat more and so tend to put on weight and they comfort eat, sort of junk food type stuff. Um, they're also more likely to be slowed down. And a useful question I put to people when they're depressed is, you know, when when you're unwell, do you feel physically restless and pace around, that's agitation, or do you feel physically slowed? And many people with bipolar will just resonate with the slowness of that. Um, Less frequently, but again, different to unipolar, people experience psychotic features. Um, And for quite a few people with bipolar, it's only when they're depressed. Um, We tend to think of psychosis and bipolar just being in mania, but for some people it's just when they're depressed. So sleeping more, eating more, slowed down. Um, Also, um, there's a greater likelihood of sort of um, subtle features of the other aspect of the illness. You get sort of some mixed features. And we found that more common in particularly bipolar 2. Um, people have sort of subtle hypomanic features interspersed with the manic features. So, and, and that's now picked up. The, you know There's been some quite big reviews in the Lancet about bipolar. And when they talk about depression, it's now that this is different to unipolar. So the field has changed over the last 10 or 20 years. DSM still doesn't recognize the difference. I, I think it's a bit behind the literature.
1: and joe i guess for a lot of us you know we consider the treatment of bipolar to be primarily medical what's the role of a psychologist in treating bipolar disorder and why is that important
3: yeah i think it's one of my big frustrations is I'd say
2: I think the role of psychologists is critical.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my big frustrations is that we're not seen as critical, yeah. Um, and I see a lot of people um, who have been struggling for decades sometimes and only being seeing psychiatrists and only being given you know 20-minute consults and a pack of meds and not ever having enough psychoeducation or any, um, let alone support, but also further skills-based training about how to really self-regulate mood. And I think that's the really important part of this discussion is how we, I guess, support these patients to learn to self-regulate. And and I often say, you know, that meds will only really ever do about 50% of the work. So it's important, yes, that we do support psychiatrists and give them that, that psychoeducation support that these patients need, but also that we take it further and that we start to actually um, skills train these patients. And mostly that's in emotional regulation training skills. Um, so any of you have done DBT training or something like that, I think it's really, these are where those regulation skills really come into play and where people can really learn mastery. Um, over mood and where you can take ownership of mood and get patients to really be able to start to work with early warning signs and be able to respond, you know. Um, And the patients that I see that can do that well and understand enough about their illness um, really thrive, I think, you know. They really take ownership, I guess, and can, can do well back in the workplace and back with their families. So, so yeah, I think it's critical. I think it's a shame that it's not really respected enough, perhaps, or that it's not referred on to enough. Um, and in saying that, I also see a lot of patients who have come from other psychologists who have only just been given support, or so I guess, sort of psychotherapy around illness, but no skills and that that's been the big difference for them. So I think we really need to know if we don't have those skills about how to help patients manage and the educational skills around psychoeducating patients that we refer on or that we learn those skills. Us And there's lots of places and lots of DBT, um, DBT training education units now that you can take part in. So yeah, I would really encourage that.
2: Maybe you can just make the yeah. comment where the I I think the barriers need to break down, and I think they are slowly breaking down between um, medical and psychological aspects of of bipolar. And I see the gold standard treatment is you know, I think for most people with bipolar, they do need medications, but the best treatment is where, you know, psychological intervention is part of the package. It's also intrigued me then in the last six months, I've had quite a few patients where they've been seeing a psychologist and the psychologist has picked up the bipolar mm-hmm. that ha- hasn't been picked up before and you know asked them to get the, the patient to get the gp to refer and i've you know you know have um, been able to confirm the diagnosis so i i think there's two-way traffic in when 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 it's working well mm-hmm.
3: And I think that's how we should I guess aspire to work is this collaborative you know including GPS as well so that there's a paperwork trail amongst us all where we're sharing information, feeding back symptoms, talking about medication side effects. Um, yeah I think there's a lot we can support each other in a lot of ways. Yeah.
1: So I guess that segues nicely into your work, Alana, which is all about making decisions about treatment. So, I'm interested what made you choose Bipolar 2 as kind of the focus of your research in terms of shared decision-making.
4: Yeah, well, I I guess it really came out of the fact that, um, I mean, the development of the decision age really premised on the idea that there is clinical uncertainty with regards to the treatment options. And I guess in the context of Bipolar 2 disorder, probably out of the fact that it was only recognised as a subtype much more recently, um, is that the bulk of the high quality research has been done in the context of bipolar one um, bipolar one disorder and so there's relatively little um, sort of evidence to support the superiority of one treatment option over another um, and I think that's really been reflected in what Gordon Parker said recently within this center, the fact that the jury's still out on treatment options and that there's an ongoing clinical trial here, um, comparing different medications for bipolar two. Um, and so, really, the bulk of the research evidence was for treatment options in bipolar one. That was one of the reasons. Um, and the fact that there are at the moment a number of viable options um, for bipolar two disorder. And I think also in the context of bipolar two disorder, because you are getting those kind of softer, less severe highs, even though over the course of the whole illness it may be just as an impairing illness as bipolar one. Um, some of the options, um, especially the medication options, um, the side effects and um, you know, potential risks associated with some of the options are actually seen as worse off. Um then the symptoms themselves um, and so I guess sometimes there's not necessarily the same motivation to engage with treatment um, and That there need to be additional considerations um, of patient preferences in that context as well um, and I guess and actually sort of creating a structured conversation around um, you know, what are your thoughts, what's important to you, what matters to you in your treatment, Um, how are these side effects going to potentially impact on your life, and actually have that as a conversation starter between clinicians and patients, Um, because uh, some of the interview work that I did, um, it was found that when that discussion wasn't had, and when people were given options that were not in alignment with their preferences for treatment. Um, Often that really was quite detrimental, one, to the therapeutic relationship, two, to the person's adherence to treatment. Um, and whereas when there was more of that considered structured discussion, um, someone was able to anticipate uh, that side effects were gonna happen and be much better prepared to deal with those side effects as well, and also just have felt that they had had some control in the decision-making process as well.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So that might bring me to you, Ollie. Um, what's been your experience of finding a medication that you tolerate? Staying on a medication, and what's all that been like for you?
5: Um, That really resonates with me. I've been on quite a few medications um, between my earlier diagnosis and then uh, in my adult life. Um, The more debilitating of the few that I've been on were the mood stabilizers that I got put on uh, after my bipolar 2 diagnosis in 2013. Um, You know, they were... It was tempting not to adhere to them um, because, you know, they would make me sleep like a rock. Like I, I would, I would just not be able to get up in the morning for some of them. Um, I put on a bunch of weight for the other ones. They've always uh, rocked me. The side effects of just about every medication that I've been on, there's some sort of catch, um, and so it made me very cynical of the psychiatric treatment I was receiving. Until eventually I, I had had enough and I came off, and then in 2016, and then again, I thought I was better, but that was another sort of manic episode. So, um, yeah, you, like I said, you're flirting with the devil because you want to be off them, especially when you, you're being so heavily impacted by the negatives of um, the medication. Um, but then it comes back to bite you, yeah definitely what you're talking about about adherence to treatment um it's definitely resonates with me what helps you adhere
1: like what makes you keep
5: going um after two sort of manic episodes and then subsequent crashes um i guess that sort of has ward warded me off got heading that path again um i sort of i have a psychiatrist that i know and i trust um, I found a, a series of medications that seems to be doing okay. Um, still, some side effects. Still not perfect. Still have um, presenting some symptoms. So that obviously not doing uh, everything, but being off them proved to be much more harmful. So keeping that in mind, and and I think I've developed over time a certain degree of self-awareness to know that it's probably for the better. Yeah. So.
1: And were you referred to a psychologist as part of your treatment as well? I
5: have been previously, have been, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay,
5: yeah. I have a much closer relationship with my psychiatrist, so um, I wound up speaking to him more often than uh, a psychologist just because we'd been through thick and thin together already and I, had, I just found him very helpful and I have a very, yeah, close relationship to him. But when I was before him, I definitely found um, my previous psychologist really helpful with all sorts of um, strategies. And yes, developing a sort of a, a sense of self to know when you're presenting sort of symptoms for a crash or symptoms for that high, which as you said, is, is hard to notice sometimes, especially when you're optimistic that this is it, that you're better. Uh-huh. And this is me, finally, I'm back to the old me.
1: And following on um, perhaps from what Alana was saying about it's hard to find concrete guidelines. Do we treat bipolar 1 differently to bipolar 2 or do we approach them the same? What's your sense of the treatment Look,
2: I'll I'll start off. Um, I, I think at the moment there's really very little guidance about bipolar 2 and I think part of the issue is diagnostic uncertainties about what are the boundaries or definitions. Um, the, there's been a handful of studies in bipolar two, but if you look at really tough gold standard randomized controlled trials, there's hardly anything out there at all. Um, so I think in general, most people extrapolate from bipolar one uh, for better or for worse. Um, the um, th- th- there's some evidence that maybe some people can be treated just with antidepressants. I, I should maybe just step back and say, I think a lot of people don't realize whether you've got Bipolar 1 or 2, you spend much more of your life depressed than you do in elevated mood. And um, there was an American researcher, Lou Judd, who followed a group of people up over many years. And he said, for um, well, people even with Bipolar 1, they spend 13 more days depressed than they did elevated over time. And for Bipolar 2, and it was reasonably conservative bipolar two. It was something like thirty or forty days depressed. So you know, for the person going through the illness, the depression is much more the critical aspect of of, of the illness. Um, so they, 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 there was sort of some evidence, particularly if you had milder bipolar two, you could maybe get away with antidepressants. Because of that issue, that depression was the most significant part of the illness. So a, a story about that, I. Was referred a, a senior academic who had clear bipolar two, um, highly capable individual, um, clear hypomanic episodes. Um, um, he and his family could recognise that very different to normal, but you know there was sort of on the edge, a bit damaging, but not too too bad. I mean, he had more energy and could do things. At times, his judgment was a bit poor, but the depressions were the main thing. So initially put him on an antidepressant to see whether that could control things. Because sort of, you're always worried is it going to stir up the elevated episodes. It didn't do that, but it didn't really help the depressions. And it was interesting, um, he went overseas and became profoundly depressed and made it a, a really serious suicide attempt. He was lucky not to die with the suicide attempt and came back and we talked about mood stabilizers. and. Um, we ended up putting him on lamotrigine. There's actually very good evidence lamotrigine prevents bipolar depression, irrespective of whether it's bipolar 1 or 2. And that's a big debate at the moment, is, is lamotrigine a bipolar 2 drug? And, and there are some people who are adamant about that. I don't think the evidence is in for that at the moment, because the studies were mainly done in people with bipolar 1. Um, and and it's actually turned out to be a very good drug for the depressed aspect of the illness. It doesn't suit everybody, and with him, it's <coughs> been profound. I mean, you know, he's hardly had any depression since that time, and the episodes, if he's had them, have been minimal. So, clinicians may have different packages for bipolar one and two, but if you look at strong evidence base, there's no evidence of differential treatments for the two. Um, Alana might want to comment from her reading of that literature. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's, it, it's tough territory. I mean, I tend to t- treat both the same. And, um, you know, we, we have a range of medication options, we have a range of psychological options. I'm not convinced that anything is clearly better in terms of literature for one or two.
4: Yeah, I guess the the decision support tool that I created was based on the um, CANMAT guidelines, which were the only guidelines that we could locate at the time that did actually provide a separate section for uh, recommendations for bipolar two disorder. Um, And there were some differences according to those guidelines between bipolar two and bipolar one. And I guess, you know, um, the literature base is definitely evolving. Um, And I guess it also sort of came out of the um, idea as well that there were other considerations that were being made by patients and by clinicians um, in the context of this disorder, um, and I guess the other point too was um, the when we were looking at the literature base also, and the idea that a lot of the clinical guidelines were simply extrapolating and um, and clinicians sort of. Um, making judgments based on their clinical knowledge, which of course is very valid, um, but I guess at the, at the time um, the evidence not necessarily being solid um, and the idea that there, are, there is still ongoing clinical uncertainty and that was something that was recognized both by clinicians and by patients as well.
3: I think what's, you know, just along that conversation too, Fred, that's really important to acknowledge specifically about the bipolar 2s is that they do need more support. You know, they do have longer, more chronic depressive episodes. They do have more comorbidities. They do present with more anxiety. So I think that as far as from a psychological perspective, these are patients that definitely need more support. And they might have different, um, non-differing psychiatric treatment, but definitely from a psychological perspective, they will need more ongoing support, yeah.
1: And I guess the main distinction really is that they're not unipolar. That's probably where the big shift in treatment has happened is to put them in the bipolar spectrum. My interest this evening is around ECT as um, a treatment option. Um, I have a sister who has recently been diagnosed with bipolar two, but she's been ill for probably 30 years now. Um, She's had some ECT treatment over time, but with mixed results. Um, So, yeah, just curious around your thoughts on that.
2: Um, I think there's an important place for ECT. Uh, It's also important it's not used too much. Uh, I, I think of ECT for patients with more severe depression, particularly where there's more biological, the term melancholic features, sometimes helpful, um, you know, where there's, um, you know, there might be psych- psychomotor slowing, particularly if we are looking at bipolar. But, but it's more, I, I think of it when people really haven't responded to treatment. I have no doubt it's our most effective physical treatment for depression. Um, but it should be used sparingly. Um, But when it's used appropriately, it just makes a huge difference. I think ECT has a terrible press. Um, And I say to patients, look, it's a bizarre treatment. I mean, you know, to have a treatment that induces a fit to get you better sounds really weird. Um, But just in practice, it's turned out to be incredibly effective. And I think these days, there's a, a greater choice that we have options that are probably less potent, but much less likely to cause memory problems. With unilateral, and for those of you, who might be where there's unilateral ultra brief, which causes even less cognitive problems. Through to the older sort of forms of bitemporal ECT, um, I, I, I think though, if someone isn't getting better, you learn from that. I've seen people have repeated courses <coughs> despite not getting better. Um, But when it's used appropriately, it can just change people's lives around. So I'm not going to say it's the right treatment for everybody, but I think for some patients who don't respond to medications, make a huge difference, particularly the more severe end of the spectrum. But in bipolar, the depressions we know respond very well to ECT, but I wouldn't see it as a first-up treatment.
1: Hi. I guess I just wanted to find out if there were any practical tips for Um, loved ones of someone that is going through a manic episode of of Bipolar 2 or if they're, you know, they're thinking that they've done great things and and they're believing that, you know, they've accomplished certain things or they believe certain things have happened. And a lot of the time, I think uh, people just leave them alone so they end up being isolated. But if you're a loved one, how do you approach that situation without making it worse?
3: I often um, get families uh, involved in sessions and what we talk about, I guess, is talking rather than pointing fingers is talking about observable behaviours. So it would be, I noticed that, or have you noticed that? Um, This is very different, this situation to, I don't know, pointing out the contrast perhaps. And rather than, um, labeling, they're really just talking about what you observe. you know I notice that you are unable to differentiate reality from what it is or whatever it might be. So using specific examples and being able to draw that contrast, I think for, for patients is really helpful. Um, yeah, there's also some great resources. Um, was, it, was it Deakin University that did bipolar caregivers? Yeah. Um, BipolarCaregivers.org is a great website that has a lot of resources and um, very practical strategies about educating carers and families about how to deal with those types of situations and there's also a couple of great books there's a wonderful book called loving somebody with bipolar disorder um, or living with somebody with bipolar disorder um, for families as well and they both um, are wonderful resources to give to caregivers families um and they have lots of discussion points and exercises that you can do um, together or as a group that really are helpful yeah 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 but it's not an easy situation yeah i think inside is you know it's very hard to develop so um pointing back i guess to observable behaviors and being able to try and show that contrast and also acknowledging that afterwards there's also often a lot of shame for people after the fallout of a hypermanic episode people often embarrassed and shamed Um, about what they might have done or what uh, loss of reality they might have had. Um, So there's often a lot of defence around that. So sometimes you have to work through that.
2: Maybe I'll make a comment on that. I think it depends how severe the elevated episode is. And this is why there's value in that definition of mania where there's marked impairment as opposed to hypomania where they're different but they're not doing really damaging things. Mm -hmm. So I think if you've got somebody say who is making terrible decisions about you know their, their career, maybe investments, um, maybe relationships. And I think the really hard bit is when you see people who, when they're elevated, start to say, well, this my husband or my wife is a bad person. They're bad for me. And it's part of their elevated episode. And you know when they're going to get better. They have a very different view of the spouse. But you see people who separate, divorce during those times. Um, so I, I, I think also if it's a really severe, I, I, I don't think agreeing with the person helps. Um, I think it needs to be clear what reality is. I think it's almost patronizing to someone. I'm interested what Ollie's thoughts are about all this because you'd have his perspective. But I, I think it's important And you can do it diplomatically, and it's hard because, as I said, people often have very poor insight when they're in elevated episodes, um, not to go along with it because it's almost encouraging, destructive, or damaging behaviour. I think if it's really intense, you need to think about mental health act and scheduling. Um, We're always reluctant to do that, Um, but particularly if somebody is aggressive, causing problems, Perhaps spending a lot of money. I've seen families go down the gurgler financially, you know, with people just spending profligately when when they're in elevated episodes. Um, so I think those sort of things, and that's at the extreme. I mean, most elevated episodes aren't to that extent, but it's actually in the long run therapeutic for the individual for someone else to take over control at that time. Um, so you know, there's a limited place for it, but. You know, you think yourself, if you had bipolar and you did damaging things, I think you'd rather get treatment than go on for months and months and everyone colluding with your behaviour. And you come out and you've just damaged your life and everybody else's along the way. So I I, I think that's one of the considerations.
5: I mean, I was uh, 18 or 19, and having my... I'm very close with my mother, and having her there to keep me in check was definitely a huge help. Also to have my... um, uh, my psychiatrist, looking who was looking after me, keeping me in check, was definitely helpful. Otherwise, but again, it's it's tempting to say yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, I'm good. But um, yeah, no, definitely, I think it was helpful to have someone a second opinion on major decisions, especially
1: you think your family understood the first time you had mood elevation? Did they know something wasn't right, or did they just think, "Oh, Ollie's going great guns"?
5: Oh yeah, no, they they uh, like you were saying with the um the quote, they all really recognised that I didn't recognise it, and um and then the opposite as well when I'm uh, when I was at my lowest of lows, um not it, it's not as obvious to other people, but it's at the forefront of my mind, um. Yeah, so they definitely realized something. At first, it was just, uh, again, great. It was, oh, he's doing so much better now. He's on top of the world, but there's a destructive el- element to it as well. Um, yeah, and, and once we had that diagnosis and had been talking to this new psychiatrist and was on mood stabilizers and things, it, it, was, it became apparent to us that, yeah, when, um, when I was in that state, uh, definitely having having people around you to keep you in check if you're a loved one, yeah. It's definitely something that you, you should talk to a professional about, and I definitely would advise having a bit of a brain trust.
2: Yeah, I think the thing of family and friends encouraging someone to seek professional help, particularly if they've got a psychiatrist who looks after them or a GP, whatever. Um, the I, I think encouraging them, because often the tendency would be to drop out of care, I would think, Ollie.. Yeah.
3: I think this is where, to a really well-thought-through uh, wellbeing plan that has a crisis plan built into it and that also has, you know, these kind of behaviours laid out that if I'm unable to take these actions, I give you permission to do X, Y, Z. And this is where crisis plans for families can, or wellbeing plans for families can really come into play and when presented back to the patient can be really effective. So, yeah, it's a really important part of therapy, I think.
1: And Joe, maybe while you're on that, um, it might be useful to talk about what do you include in your well-being plans, like what are the main components of a well-being
3: plan? Um, well certainly I you know Black Dog do a lot of this as well, I think. Certainly, you know we, we, uh, the, the basic components should be definitely um, starting to look at, you know, what are the early warning signs when the patient's starting to get hypermanic or depressed. And those really early warning signs. So not the things that happen every time when I get manic or depressed, but the very first things that start to shift and often people will have a set of relapse signature behaviours around that kind of process. So it's really important to start to nail those down, get family members involved in that conversation. Often spouses, I find, are a lot better at picking that stuff than the patients themselves. So getting that signature, that relapse signature laid out, so then you've got your early warning signs, then you definitely be looking at triggers, what are the people, places, environments that can make that patient unwell. Um, And then we'd be starting to look at, okay, if I notice that those early warning signs start to come into play, what do I agree to do? What are the set of behaviours or strategies that I've got in my toolkit that I agree to do to help me manage those symptoms? And then the next step would be, and if I'm able to do that, or if I've lost insight, or if I can't do that, I therefore give my psychologist, my psychiatrist, whatever, what's the next step, permission to do X, Y, Z. And that might be when they contact and get more medications with their psychiatrist, they might come for therapy, they might come with their family. And then within that further, we'd do a crisis plan. So if I become suicidal or if I become so manic that I'm, you know, I don't know, gambling, my house, whatever it is, I also have permission to do this. I want to go to this um, hospital, be admitted this way. So that people have some dignity in that loss moment, that moment as well, I think, that crisis moment. There's a lot of loss of dignity. There's a lot of grief that goes on with that afterwards. So it's important to give some people, I get people control, patients control through that process. And then on top of that, all the wellbeing strategies, the basic things I think that people really overlook Um, because they think they're too simple, but that we know work well for mood and that's simple things like sleep, nutrition, exercise, regular routine, stress management, yeah.
4: And I might just pick up on that as well and just sort of um, with the context of the research that I was doing as well that um, recognised the importance of family involvement in making decisions about treatment as well um, and within the decision support tool uh, there is a section on the ways in which um, family members may be involved in that process and um, the different because I guess sort of the involvement of family does bring with it um, several advantages it obviously does at the diagnostic stage it does provide a lot of insights into um, the person's behavior and changes to their behavior during periods of elevation and that might then obviously inform the initial diagnosis um, and then later down the track family members can be really important in terms of I guess soundboarding um preferences for treatment as well and this was a process that um, definitely came out in the interviews that I conducted, um, and was often done outside of consultations. So. Um, perhaps options had been pre- uh, presented within the initial consultation and then uh, the patient was perhaps sent away to consider those options and then a decision about treatment would be made in subsequent consultation. And it would be during that interim period that the patient would obviously be talking through um, the different options and soundboarding those with the family member. And it's really important obviously to get the family engagement um, at that point in time as well.
1: Um, I'm really interested um, in your opinion, view,
4: or theory of causation, and particularly given um, when Ollie said trauma, whether it's chronic, um, acute, and therefore leading to PTSD and re traumatisation.
2: Um, if you look at the role of trauma trauma increases the risk of all mental illness um, and i think it's non-specific so whether we're looking at anxiety depression bipolar schizophrenia that particularly early abuse experiences increase the risk of everything um, if you look at bipolar specifically it's very genetic and it's very strongly inherited and you know some people that's good news, other people don't want to hear that. But if you look at the formal studies, seventy to eighty percent of the cause of bipolar is inherited. Um, so and and when you talk to the families, you often see there's family history of bipolar, it mightn't be bipolar, it might be severe depression, it might be severe schizophrenia, it might be schizophrenia, and we know that in families with bipolar there's more schizophrenia and vice versa particularly for bipolar 1. Um, we, our, our group here in Sydney was involved in a recent paper published on the genetics of bipolar and nature genetics about three weeks ago. And what we found, it was interesting that bipolar 1, if you look at the actual genes that are more common, is closer to schizophrenia. It's not the same, but there's overlap. Whereas bipolar 2 was closer to depression. Now, that throws up a lot of complicated questions, what that really means. Um, but both of them were, there were genes that were associated with those more commonly than there were in the general community. So they were associated with having bipolar. So we're starting to understand the specific genes. And I think that the, 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 some people view that as very nihilistic. I've got the genes, so I can't do much about it. But we think of genes these days as more vulnerability and susceptibility and you know a lot of people don't realize that there's an inherited risk if you get a bug that you get the illness because a lot of people get the particular bacterium but never get the the illness so we know that even for viruses bacterial infection that we all differ in terms of our susceptibility if we inhale you know the same bug so, yeah genetic vulnerability is just part of health it's the same cardiovascular disease whatever there's this vulnerability but it's exacerbated by the environment so with cardiovascular it's you know sort of not exercising enough or eating the wrong food so um, so that, that it, it will help us ultimately in terms of better treatments because you know we're lucky we've got the lithiums and the lamotrigines of the world they, they, they're dead lucky we got these. I mean, lithium was a chance discovery by, you know, a thoughtful Australian guy, but a chance discovery. Lamotrigine was developed for epilepsy, and people realized that people with epilepsy on lamotrigine had less mood symptoms, um, and, and same with epilim. So, you know, I think in 10 or 20 years we'll see the fruits that... Because if you understand the genes, you understand the biology, which means you can target treatments. And I have got no targeted treatments, so it will change. Um, There'll always be the critical aspect of psychological interplay. It'll never take away. Um, But if you look at what's specific, you know, for bipolar, 70-80% is genetic, but trauma is across the field. And um, I I think of, you know, even depression we now know is 40% genetic. People might be surprised to hear that. But 60% is environmental. Um, so there's with a lot of the conditions we deal with, we have different vulnerabilities. I mean, you get depressed without a family history, of course. But if you've got a strong family history, you're much more likely to get depressed. So, you know, and I think trauma is one of those environmental factors that ramp up your, your risk of getting illness. So if you've got a you know, particularly a genetic vulnerability, plus you were traumatised during your childhood, then that would further increase your risk. So I, I don't see these as one or the other. It's more we think of an interplay um, between that sort of inherent vulnerability and um, things happening in our life, either when we're young or when we're in adulthood. Yeah.
1: And recently I have like two cases that I found um, with bipolar. They kind of like... Um, slip into having alcohol and I'm just wondering what is the role of their self-medicating with alcohol or their phases of getting into like this um, binging of alcohol so I'm just wondering if there's any research or in any clinical exper- experience you have how you kind of see the alcohol chemically have you know coincide with bipolar disease yes yeah.
2: Um, I'll, I'll talk about epidemiology first, then in terms of treatment, other people might respond. So I, we, we know that people with bipolar, about 40 to 50% have drug and alcohol, drug and or alcohol problems. Um, so it's a common you know, technical term, comorbidity or association. Um, so that if you look at populations, it's very common. And I think most of the programs, and also 40, 50% have an anxiety disorder or multiple anxiety disorders. So we, we, we talk about bipolar if it's a pure isolated illness, but for most people, the majority, they would either have comorbid substance use of some sort or an anxiety disorder. Um, and I don't think the a lot of the treatment recommendations really have come to grips with this. Um, but also there's no well-studied, um, you know, well-replicated treatments. I mean, we we did a study here, with Tanya Perrick doing her PhD of mindfulness-based CBT for people with comorbid bipolar and anxiety disorders. Um, we, we found that the mindfulness CBT really was very effective for the anxiety. didn't make any difference for the bipolar. so I, I think this is a challenge for the field, how we develop well evidence-based treatments for people with comorbidity. It's exactly the same in depression, you know that we have treatments for depression, but uh, we, we don't you know the the evidence for depression comorbid with other things is not great. So, I think it's a challenge. For individuals, some individuals drink more when they're high or low, and I think then that gives you a target to address. I think the broader association where it's not clear what's chicken and what's egg is more difficult. But quite a few people, when they're elevated mood, as part of their disinhibition, drink more or use substances. You've got to be differentiating between substance as triggering an episode as opposed to substance as being a result of an episode and and both are common in practice but others might have comments
3: yeah i think it's definitely two-way it's causal thing but you know what i noticed clinically is it's historically mostly a way people self-medicate you know, they've learnt very early on that this is a way I can either um, push down mood or lift mood um, and it's an effective and readily available drug. So and a lot of the time you'll see that through high school and university if you go through a timeline with somebody that that's where that started. So there becomes this dependency and also, as Phil said, yes, people will, when they become less inhibited, also use you know alcohol to become more hypermanic or also to quell hypermania you know I have one patient who has a beer every day at three o'clock because that's when he starts to elevate mm. so yes alcohol is I think and it, you know we need to be able to treat treat them both and and it's a bit of a chicken or the egg strategy because if there's heavy dependency it becomes very problematic with medication um, and often that's when people will stop you know, medicating or stop or drop out of therapy so yeah it's tricky
2: Sometimes it clouds the diagnosis as well. So I've seen <clears throat> a few people over time where I'm just not sure what's going on because they're hitting, you know, using a lot of cannabis and alcohol. And I'd say, and I think for two reasons: one is to clarify the diagnosis, get your substance use under control. Then it will become clear whether there's an underlying mood problem. Because you see some people that the substances t- tip them high or low, you know, because you know they're, they're using too much. But, but um, also when people are using heavily with clear bipolar you're, you know I agree with Joe that you just don't get the treatment response because the the drugs are taking over.
4: No, I was just going to note quickly as well that um, the centre that I'm working for currently uh, their focus is on uh, mental health and substance use and the comorbidities between those and uh, the group that I'm working with currently, they've actually developed the um, first national guidelines that were funded by the Australian government, um, and that was um, management. Uh, sorry, guidelines for the treatment and management of people with comorbid uh, alcohol and other drug and mental health issues. Um, and I guess sort of, you know, really that dilemma that you're coming across there is really reflective of the siloed approach to treatment provision in this country, and you know, the idea that, you know, ideally we do want to be moving much more towards integrated treatment approaches um, and I guess that is also sort of, and this I guess ties into the research that I'm doing currently, that's also a space potentially for shared decision making and kind of deciding with the patient, you know, what are the issues that you'd like to address and within that treatment, integrated treatment approach, Um, it's then that I guess you can help to work out the relationship between the substance use and the symptoms Um, because as um, both Joe and um, Phil mentioned, you know, it can be bi-directional and it can be one playing into the
3: other. I've got a question for Ollie. Um, Just in terms of just following on from what's been discussed, just wondering how you trust and your family trust your decisions and thoughts and feelings when you're euthymic, so when you're not depressed and when you're not manic
1: and you might make a decision to change jobs or drink ten beers or something <laughs> and it's not actually about being up or down.
3: Is, is there some panic around that sometimes and this indicates that you're unwell or, or are you able to now sort of trust that that's just you know, yeah. part, part of your normal
5: I think, uh, like I said, I think I've developed a, a good, a healthy dose of self-awareness. I think I know now and can, if, I'm, if I sit myself down and be brutally honest, I know if I'm kidding myself, if I'm just trying to give in to that, that high. Or, it, um, again, I, I refer to my family as sort of a brain trust. I sort of, they know me very well. I'm very lucky. In that sense, I'm I'm very lucky. I have a lot of people around me, who um, keep me in check. But I don't think that's um, something I really have an issue with. Is is I think when I'm at a baseline or flat, I think I'm yeah. I think I'm quite self aware. I think I'm quite um, rational. I think it's only uh, in the manic phase that I ever um, became became. I wouldn't even say destructive, but became different um, and started making uh, decisions that were, again, not necessarily destructive, but different and odd and at, at odds with me. So no, I'm very lucky in that sense. I think, I'm, um, yeah, I don't think I uh, struggle
2: with that too much at a baseline level, fortunately. Sorry. <laughs> it, it, it's a great question. Because particularly people with unstable illness, the family, some families get oversensitized to um, any assertiveness or wanting to make decisions is indicative of mania, and so you know I've seen a number of spouses and you know the their, their, their spouse, their partners had bipolar. And when they're appropriately assertive, that gets interpreted as manic, aggressive behaviour. And I think it's really hard. I mean, I think it's easy to be judgmental of the families, but I think they've often been burnt. That's the problem. You know, so I can understand it. And I think, you know, I, I think that's often where someone like Joe can come in helpful to help families and individuals try to work out what what are signs, signatures that I would think it's more likely to be sort of pathologically elevated mood as opposed to... Normal appropriate assertiveness.
3: Yeah, I I think families or or partners can really, and even patients themselves, can over identify with symptoms, you know, and over identify with what hypomania is. And Mm. there is a lot of panic because families and partners have gone through a lot of trauma. Mm. I think, particularly, more so maybe with bipolar ones when they have that more extreme manic behavior. But yeah, I think a lot of. I guess memory recall is affected in manic episodes. And so a lot of, often the patient doesn't recall what they've done or said, but the family has gone through that. And they're really holding a lot more anticipatory sort of dread and fear. Uh, around, I guess, future episodes than the patient really is at time. So, yeah, it's very difficult. But, again, that's where I think that wellbeing plan comes into play where we there's an open, frank discussion about, you know, is this a plan? Like let's say they want to go on a holiday. Is this a plan thing that you've talked about for three months or is it an impulsive over thing night that you booked airline tickets? You know, it's that kind of what's typical for, you know, as Ollie said, what's typical for me in that euthymic state um, and and laying all that out on a piece of paper and having lots of discussions about it, yeah.
1: And Ollie, what helped you develop that self-awareness? Like how do you think it came about?
5: Um, Unfortunately, I think part of it is to do with my anxiety. I think I um, overthink these things and play them through as a result of that, which I guess um, gives me some sort of over-rationalisation. I tend to try and play things out and think things through too much as a result of my anxiety, so I think it's a, a bit of a... Double edged sword, that one. Yeah, I think that's how I've sort of developed um, my. And I, perhaps I'm oversensitive too. And I know my family definitely was when we were trying to sort of uh, understand this recent diagnosis. You know, anything that was maybe me making a positive step could have been a bit. And, you know, is this another sign? But. Um, yeah, so that, that's
2: definitely it. A... Yeah, yeah, I think that's the other side of it that Ollie's just raised, that quite a few people say to me, particularly where the moods have been swinging, I'm not sure what my normal self is. Um, you know, what is me? Um, particularly if, you know, in it, where it's unsteady, the illness is unstable, that there's a loss of confidence. Who am I? Um, you know, am am I this depressed? Am I this sort of more energetic person? Um, And and that's a frequent comment I get given to me, exactly that same issue, that sort of a loss of confidence is who am I as opposed to what is the illness. Um,
4: From a professional point of view, um, the clients or the patients that you see, what tends to be the messages that are coming out after diagnosis in regards to the shame or the stigma Or the difficulty in sort of accepting that diagnosis as opposed to some other diagnosis, which, you know, tends to be a little bit more potentially um, accepted within society or the communities in which we live.
2: Okay, I'll make comments, I'm sure others will as well. It's part of the reason I'm pretty conservative about the diagnosis of bipolar because it it has a lot of ramifications. Um, And I think, despite a lot of good work through Beyond Blue and others. I think a lot of our conditions still have a lot of stigma associated with them. I, I sit down when I'm when I'm raising the possibility of, with the patient. Um, my, my experience is a lot of people have thought about it before they come to see me. Um, I've also had it go the other way, where people hate me for taking away the diagnosis. Um, my colleague, Henry Bradati used this lovely term, depolarize. you know, <laughs> so that you... Um, you know, you say, well, I'm not convinced it's bipolar. Um, but, but I think that the diagnosis has a lot of ramifications. I think we need to think through that with the person, talk about what they're feeling about that. Um, but, but, you know, the majority of people where it comes up that I speak to, it's already been in their consideration, even if it hasn't been raised by another professional. They've, they've read about it, they've heard about it. I think the other thing that I always say to individuals when I make the diagnosis is I view this very positively because for the vast majority of people, the the appropriate treatment makes a huge difference to their lives. So when I raise the possibility of the diagnosis, it's within the context of therapeutic optimism, not not sort of you know, patronising, you know, everything's going to be fine. And and it's clear that this is a tough illness for most people. But, you know, really we can make a big difference. For some people you can completely control the illness. Probably for the majority we can make the illness less intense and less um, debilitating. So I always do it within a positive context. I, th- I think if it was perceived or stated as this is almost like a death sentence, which I think can happen at times, I think that can be very damaging.
3: Yeah, I think Hollywood doesn't do the the illness a lot of justice, does it, in that respect? And that often the very small percentage of behaviour, which is the mania or the manic component, is really over, I guess, exaggerated in those Hollywood stories or portrayed in celebrity press or whatever it is. And that really, that's not what the illness is about. You know, mostly this is a highly recurrent illness of depression. Um, and so people get misinformation and a lot of fear I find when they get diagnosis about will I ever have a job, will I be able to marry, will I be able to have kids, will I have a normal life, you know, and they're not seeing those success stories that are out there every day and lots of people function really well Mm. with this illness and that's an important thing to discuss and, Mm. and to remind people of, you know, it's just about giving support and giving skills and unfortunately I don't think we give enough of that, you know, when we're giving diagnosis, yeah.
1: That's why it's great to have people like Ollie talking about it yeah. and helping people understand it better. I'm mindful we're just about out of time, but before we finish Alana, I'd love for you to tell us where you're up to with the study, with the decision yeah. tool. And yeah, sure. Um, so
4: just a couple of weeks ago, um, so for my PhD, I developed a decision-making support booklet. Um, there's a couple of copies just on the desk near the exit. Um, and then we received funding to actually adapt that into a website for, um, with a focus too on young adults who had been recently diagnosed with bipolar 2. So we've just recently finished recruitment for that in the last couple of weeks, and we're, given our sort of, I guess, current participant flow, we're hoping to have that uh, resource made available in September of this year. So, um, yeah, I've left some postcards. Feel
1: free to take one on your way out. Um, thank you. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking our wonderful
0: channel. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.